Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. All right. Hey, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the Other People program. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you on this Sunday. It's a Sunday episode. I haven't done one of these in a while. I thought I would do a Sunday episode. My guest today is Patricia Engel. Her new novel, Infinite Country, is available now from Avid Reader Press. It is the official April pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. For more on that, check out TheNervousBreakdown.com. The Other People podcast is offered freely. This show is available to you, the listener, in its entirety. The entire catalog available to you for free, more than 700 episodes and counting. You can listen via uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your shows. It's a listener-supported program. If you like it, if you get something from it, you can support this podcast for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to patreon.com slash other PPL pod, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. You can get a sticker, a, a coffee mug, a tote bag, a t-shirt. Uh, I will write you a handwritten postcard. I will wish you happy birthday. Check it out at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can follow this show on Twitter at other PPL. And new episodes typically go live every Wednesday. Occasionally, I will do a Sunday episode, as I am doing today. Patricia Engel is the author of several books, including The Veins of the Ocean, which won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, It's Not Love, It's Just Paris, which won the International Latino Book Award, and Vida. Vida, uh... Won Patricia the Premio Biblioteca de Narrativa Colombiana. She was the first woman to be awarded Colombia's National Prize in Literature back in 2017. I'm very pleased to get to share this conversation with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Patricia Engel. And her new novel, once again, is called Infinite Country. I'm the daughter of Colombian immigrants. I was raised by and around immigrants, and that's my world. Those are the people I most admire and I most love and I'm most inspired by. So all of my books have explored immigration diaspora in different ways. Uh, and very often they're stories about families, but really told by focusing on one individual. I knew that I wanted to write a book that was a portrait of a family, speaking to the whole family experience, which is very typical of families who are in the process of immigration. 
um, you're having a, 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 un, a united family experience, but within that family unit, the family members are each having a private experience. I never saw a book that uh, spoke to that, the, the both shared and private world of a family going through this experience in the process of emigrating and, of course, its aftermath and all the uncertainty. So that's really where where it began is the story of so many families that I've known. It's to different degrees. You know, not every family is exactly like the family in infinite country, but so many families that I know um, have some aspect of their experience uh, in their immigration trajectory in common with uh, with the feelings and the uh, um, distance and sometimes separation and just. Um, the cultural changes and challenges and difficulties and the the, the challenges of paperwork um, on your day-to-day life. So I, I wanted to write toward that space, and it really began as an exploration of all those ideas and all those feelings. Was there a character that you started with, like one individual member of this family? Uh, I knew it would be a family story, so I always thought of the family as a unit. And then as I spent more time thinking about the, this unit and what makes this family in particular tick and the different members and how, uh, who one member of the family is, for example, the three siblings, so much of their lives are defined by who the other siblings are and what their experience is. And it's really just about those interconnections and um, the ways that this whole family is, is linked together in different ways and they mirror each other and they deviate from one another in different ways. Um, the first line that I wrote and the first section that I wrote was the opening section, the story of Talia. Uh, and uh, she's the youngest daughter of the family. She's 15 years old and she's been sent back to Colombia as a baby while her mother takes care of the rest of the family in the United States. So, um, she was a lot of fun to write. She's very bold and brave and and uh, fearless in a lot of ways. So I, I started the story with her, but I also had a strong sense of her parents, Elena and Mauro, because really the whole story of the family begins with them meeting and falling in love as teenagers. So I had to go back and write that too. Were you drawing on... Um... Like per, like personal narratives, like like some of these stories feel so lived in. I, I that might just be great fiction writing, but I'm just wondering, like if you have, like in the the context of your family history and ancestry, if you've heard stories that you were able to kind of use um, as you were building this book. Well, I mean, fiction writing is an interesting thing. It is an art, so it comes from an invention, from creativity. Um, I'm a personal, I'm a human being in the world. So, of course, my, everything that I see is, is filtered through me and my eyes and my mind and my feelings. Um, so there are things about my life or the lives uh, that I've witnessed or lives that I hear about that, of course, ignite creative fires in me. And they become sparks that I pursue um, as a writer. And some things come from research and some things are um, purely invented. And somehow all those things come together in order for me to give life to a new family that populates a new story. But as a fiction writer, I also teach writing, you know, so just from a craft perspective, um, the, the way that a story be- starts to feel real on the page is when as a writer, you let it live within you for a good amount of time and you sort of become occupied by this family and all these characters and, and they take on a life of their own in your mind and and, and you really, I, I mean, for lack of a better word, it's like you almost become possessed by them. And in that way, they almost write themselves. But that's, that's you know, that's an artistic process. But that's, I think, the goal of any fiction writer and that's why it's so rewarding. Yeah, and the book opens with a great um, scene, you know, like a cinematic opening. Really, it's a, it's like a prison break from a girl's. Uh, it's like a girl's school or a girl's not a girl's school, but a girl's like juvie. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think if you're trying to build a book around these kinds of ideas, or like this is what came to mind as I was reading it. You know, you have these kinds of issues that you want to explore as you were. Uh, telling me earlier, you know, about wanting to go into the life of this family, but also having the obligations of a fiction writer, you know, making sure that you're bringing the reader into a narrative um, and, and 
kind of grabbing them immediately. Uh, Your book's very good at that. Like, it's a very elegant, efficient book, and I always appreciate that as a reader. Like, I don't feel like there's any wasted motion, but I also feel like there's nothing missing. Um, And I, I don't know. I guess, like, the question I would have is, like, like when you sat down to to write the book, were were you outlining, plotting, um, you know, thinking in those terms, or did you just kind of like sit down, like and intuit it day by day? It's a bit of both. Um, you know, I have learned through the process of writing a few books that the best way for me to write my avoid writing myself into a wall is by preparing ahead of time. And I'm a very informal in what somebody else might call an outline. For me, it's just a lot of notes, a lot of scribblings. Um, and they're really just there for me to be able to jog my memory later on when I kind of forget what I'm writing or why I'm writing it or what motivated me in the first place. So I take a lot, a lot of notes. And I have tons of notebooks that I keep near me when I'm writing. And in those notes a story starts to form um, in the form of timelines or just uh, trajectories or I map out the years when things are occurring, but it's always changing. You know, my, my, when I'm in the process of writing, I'll get another idea. So I, I'm never afraid to stray away from that. At the same time, I give myself um, a little support system in the form of my notes so that if I lose my way, I can find it again. Yeah. Um, But Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, when you're telling a family story, you know, you have multiple characters that you're juggling. And I think that that might present more uh, danger (laughs) to a fiction writer, like that that it could become unwieldy if you don't have some sort of, you know, outline process. Or like you said, if you don't do any kind of work ahead of time to plan things out, I could imagine you could easily get lost. Yeah, with Infinite Country, I really wanted it to feel like a story that you're being told. You know, when you that experience of when you meet somebody, you connect, you sit down, you have a conversation where they share something with you about themselves. And sometimes those stories don't come out in a linear way, right? So in the case of this, I could imagine um, the narrator, Karina, telling you about her sister when she broke out of the juvenile correction center, right? But in order to understand that story, you have to go back. You have to understand why is this even happening? How did she end up there? Well, you can't know unless you learn the story of their parents, right? So it's really, um, I'm always interested in the way that one story cannot exist without another, and they fold into one another, and yet they support one another, they build upon one another. And for me, that's great fun as a writer, is to play with um, what are really emotional uh, timelines or spiritual timelines or just experiential timelines that have nothing to do with chronology. What it made me think of when I was reading it is how many stories get lost, like great stories, um, painful, mm-hmm. painful stories sometimes. But when you think about any family history, like I was reflecting on my own family and my great-grandparents, their immigration story, uh, like on my dad's side, was that they came over from Sicily in, I want to say the late 19th century, early 20th century. Like they met on the boat. They were both 14. Neither spoke a word of English. You know, they they got married, I think, when they were like probably 16. I mean, just crazy, you know, stuff. But that's about all I know. Like I don't know a lot. And it pains me to think of what what I'm missing, you know, about not only their history but my own. Yeah, and you realize, like in the case of, of your ancestors, they were the ones who left the homeland and came to the new country, right? And uh, the majority of Americans have this story somewhere in their family line, right? That rupture, the who we were before and who we became. And with Infinite Country, you're seeing a family in the process of that. But everyone has that somewhere in them. And that's why, like exactly what you said, our stories become so important because sometimes it's the only thing that we take with us when we leave and start a new life elsewhere. And also, when we don't repeat them, like you said, like language, they're the first thing to go. Yeah. You know, so. Hey, folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, 
if you've written a book, but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. Well, I, uh, I, I guess like uh, a question would be, you said, I want to say you said maybe before we came on the air that you are the child of immigrants. Are you first generation American? Like, did your parents come over? Was that the rupture for um, you? You know, people define first and second generation in different ways. Um, so it really depends on who you're talking to. My parents um, came here. My brother was born in Puerto Rico and I was born in the United States and I'm a dual citizen. My parents are Colombians. Um, did you always know that you were going to be a writer? Um, I think in some way I did. I grew up in a very large and very artistic family of musicians and painters mostly. And everyone, absolutely every member of my family had an art form, but most, most of them did not make a living from that. So it was just very normal in our very large clan that everybody had their thing, their, their mode of expression. I was not good at playing music like my, um, my uncles or my cousins or my brother. And um, I thought I would be a painter. I, I really liked painting. But when I learned how to write, I started writing little stories to go along with my drawings, and the stories just kind of took over. And I became a rather obsessive journaler. But my grandmother, who had nine children, was also a writer. And she never really published anything except, you know, letters to the editor of the newspaper. Um, but she wrote books and books and books for herself, just out of pure love of writing. And I think that was my first example of just a dedicated and disciplined writing out of pure passion practice and giving yourself permission to have that time for yourself with your, with your art. And it was respected across my entire family. My grandmother had her writing, you know, it was, and so it was something that was honored. And I really think that that was um, a gift to me as a, as a young kid, a young creative kid, that I saw how um, no matter if you're getting paid for it or if you're getting accolades or you're sharing your work or anything, the fact that you want to do it is reason enough to give it the time um, that it deserves. So um, I learned that from my grandmother, and and it, it's it's a, a discipline that I, I and a, an idea that I I try to use even today as I write my books. I I think about that. You never know if a book is going to see the light of day, but what keeps you coming back to it day after day, page after page, is is your own connection to it and whether or not you feel that it's important and worth it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like just growing up in a family that's artistic, where you have multiple. Um, if not like professional artists, people with like a strong artistic tendency, that alone mm. for, uh, you know, somebody with the writing, with like the wiring of a writer is so valuable because it normalizes being creative. Uh, you know, there are other family situations where the writer or the artist in the family can sort of be the outlier. But it sounds like for you, it was like, you know, it was normal to be a creative person and to spend time making art. Yeah, absolutely. I, I realize now, like you said, it was normalized and, and what a gift it was because through so many different difficult periods in, in all of our lives, really art can be a means of survival. You know, it, it can be sometimes your best friend. It can be your only refuge. And uh, I'm so grateful that my family 
uh, taught me how to create that space and that private artistic relationship for myself. Are your grandmother's books still in existence? Like, do you have these? Um, I don't have them. One of my relatives has them. <laughs> um, they were, you know, typed as technology permitted at the time um, on onion paper, no less. <laughs> so it's, they exist on very fine, uh, very delicate pages. And yeah, there's cases and cases and cases of them. What I do have are her letters because she was, you know, a prolific letter writer. Even though I lived 10 minutes away from her, she would write letters to me all the time. And I have um, some notebooks and things that she gave to other people and wrote to other people that over the years they have given to me. Have you ever used them in your, like, as material or resource material for fiction? No, I haven't. I have not. Um, my grandmother was also a huge storyteller, and she was from Medellin, which is a very colorful uh, town in the sense that a lot of fantastical things seem to happen there, some wild stories, and she would tell those all the time. So one or two of those have worked their way into um, my stories or have inspired things in my stories, but, but nothing from her writing that's really just, you know, um, family things, like, just for us. So you're growing up uh, in this family uh, surrounded by creative people. You're into visual arts, but you're also learning that you're a writer. And then, mm-hmm. um, like, when did you start to attempt to publish? Like, were you in school, like, in school taking creative writing classes, or did you <laughs> just sub- start submitting? Like, how did it go for you, like, to get to the point where you were actually seeing your work in print? Oh, it was a long road. I think I'm, I was a late bloomer by most standards. Um, I didn't even know you could major in creative writing in college. Um, I majored in other things. I was not the kind of student that ever attracted the attention of teachers, you know, um, for mentorship or anything like that. Uh, but I just wrote on my own and I finished college and I was living in New York City and I worked for many years and I just wrote on my own at night. Sometimes I would take uh, those community workshops and continuing education programs or things like that um, just to be in a workshop atmosphere and, and get more used to sharing my work because I never shared my work with anyone. And then I was in um, I was in my late 20s when I first of all, learned what an MFA program was because I had no idea. And I applied and I went to one, which was a three-year program. And it was in that program that I even learned about submitting work to magazines. I didn't even know that was a thing. And I started doing that, um, I guess, towards you know the end of it. And um, when I finished, I just started writing like a mad woman and I wrote a book, and uh, that that year I got an agent, and I got a, and the year after that I got a, a a deal for two books, my first two books. Wow! So, what was the MFA program <laughs> that you went to? Florida International University. Okay, so you you were in New York, but then you went back to, or you went to Florida. I uh, went to Florida, and then I stayed in Florida. I basically just took it year by year. I stayed here. I started teaching, um, adjuncting, and I was just writing and writing and writing up a storm. And so, yeah, I wrote uh, I wrote five books here. <laughs> wow! So that's what's kept me here. Well, you and you say you're a late bloomer, but going like late twenties sounds young to me. I'm, I mean, I'm in my mid forties, and I'm still like <laughs> I'm still blooming. If I'm if that's even yeah. happening. <laughs> well, I'm still blooming too, but you know. Uh, Sometimes, I, I, because I'm a professor now, I see students who just are, are so self-possessed from so young, and they go right into their MFA after college, and it took me a lot longer to get there. <laughs> but you, you know, after, like, at this MFA program, were you working on the books that you eventually, or at least one of the books that you eventually sold and published, or was the MFA no. program, that was kind of <laughs> like, like the MFA program, I've heard this many times before, where people go to an MFA and work, 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 and do all this writing, none of which is publishable, and then after the MFA is over, then then they get down to business and write the book. Yeah, that that might have been the case for me in in a, in a way. Um, it was it was wonderful. It's like a, in my case, it was like a three year laboratory. You know, I experimented, I learned, I read so much, shared my work. It, it, it was a wonderful experience. Um, you know, but writing for a workshop is different 
than writing for yourself. And uh, those years were very valuable because I became a better editor of my own work. And it allowed me to articulate to myself what my true intentions for my work were and hone my instincts for my own writing. So when I finished, I do recall I defended my thesis and um, I put it away and um, I I started doing other things, and I, I just started uh, writing. I was actually working on a, a novel that I was struggling with a lot at the time. And in order to take breaks from the novel and just have some fun, I would write these stories on the side just to entertain myself like I did as a kid, you know, for no other reason. And then at a certain point, I realized that I had kind of written a book on the side, it was sort of an accidental book because all the stories I'd written where I'd come to the page to play, to give myself a break from that novel that was making me nuts. Um, all these stories were speaking to one another and were connected and following the same character. And I realized, oh, I've got a book on my hands over here. <laughs> so I dropped that other novel and I stayed with that accidental book. And that became my first book, which is Vida. And Vida was sold um, with a, a novel, uh, which was called It's Not Love, It's Just Paris, which I, I had not yet written it when it was sold. Wow. You know, that's another story that I've heard uh, more than once, which is this idea of like, you know, somebody trying to write it. It's always a novel. It, it's very rarely like a story collection. It's usually a novel that they're obsessed with, but it isn't working quite yet, or it may not work at all. And then for relief from the novel, you know, you start sort of noodling around on the side. And once you've got yourself like liberated, I think like the, somehow you liberate yourself creatively without even realizing it. <laughs> and, uh, and then you start doing your best work without all of that, maybe intention and whatever pressure you might feel to, to be good, you know, on the page. Yeah, I think the best writing, you know, even as a reader, is when you can feel the author's joy or at least thrill or, you know, a connection to their own work. And then you can always feel the opposite, you know, when, when an author is just sort of like phoning it in or, or is not connected and there's a coldness to it. So that's a valuable lesson. Just try, I always try to go back to that space of coming to the page to play and that intimate um, relationship with with my writing um, purely for my own interest. And sometimes that translates into something that more people will enjoy. Hmm. Do you, so you went away uh, to this MFA and, you know, you get more comfortable with the idea of sharing your work. You get feedback from people who've read it. You learn about the, the whole process of submission and um, mm. you know the business of publishing uh, on top of that like you know you were writing before you went to your MFA but did you develop uh, like a system I think most people who do this for the long haul wind up having like a, a pretty well-developed system um, was this when that happened for you or like has it the happened system of what of just what getting the work done like when to get the work done like are you like how do you actually get down to the business of um, getting words on the page like and did you develop like a routine basically um while you were in your mfa well you know in order to attend my mfa i had to um, quit a job in new york and so i told myself if i'm gonna give up my whole um, working life in New York, I really need to take advantage of these three years because that might be all it is. It might just be three years and that's it, you know, and I've got to go back to uh, to New York and, and forget about writing. So I really busted my tail writing as much as possible, learning as much as possible, reading as much as I could, reading everything people told me to read um, just to maximize the three years I was giving myself for that kind of education. Um, as a result of that, I, I learned what worked for me in order to maintain a sense of discipline and a sense of productivity. And years later, I, I still you know, know what works for me. I, I do my best work uh, beginning in the morning by natural light. I write in silence. And um, without distractions or other commitments on a perfect day, you know, I, I can go several several long hours before my eyes and my back give out on me and I've got to, you know, pause the writing. But I um, I do, 
I do have a, a good practice in place. Yeah. And um, in terms of like developing an idea for the body of your work, you you mentioned this earlier. Um, you know, where you started to get a sense of what kinds of books you would like to to write and hopefully eventually publish while you were studying. Like, am I misreading it in thinking that you had like maybe kind of like an overarching view of the the body of work that you would like to produce, like the like the connective tissue or like the thematic. Um, connection that your that your books share do you see what i'm saying is that where you started to realize like this is the this is the kind of work i want to do like this is my metier um maybe yes and no i don't know if it was you know i had a fully fleshed out philosophy <laughs> or anything like that i just operated on a sense of urgency my first book felt very urgent to me at the time my second book also did at the time, as did, as did The Veins of the Ocean. So really, um, I think that just a person carrying the entire life, and because I'm also a person who collects stories of my family and, and those I love, um, the stories very often emerge from me. I don't really have to I seek them um, from elsewhere. They just kind of are buried within me and then they start to rise to the surface and announce themselves in different ways. Sometimes there's, there are things that uh, take longer for me to be ready to write. Uh, the Veins of the Ocean was a very hard book to write. It, it required a lot of me. It was years of research and uh, it was very intense and it took over my life for many years. And uh, it's a book that I love so much for, for that reason, but I didn't know what it was when I began. You know, so much of it was uh, was the book telling me what it was as I was writing it. And for me, that's the magic and the mystery of being a writer. That's so much of the joy of it is that you don't always know where you're going. I, I know who I am and I know that the, the communities that I belong to. And the, that's what matters to me, obviously, because when I was growing up as a young reader, I never saw these communities on the page. And it's it's still there's still a huge deficit, you know, for stories of diaspora, especially the Colombian diaspora, which is one of the largest diasporas in the world. So I'm always writing to, into that space, um, but I I'm always looking for for new ways to enter those stories. And in Infinite Country, it's very much a story about homelands and the connections to our ancestral past that we carry in us in our DNA that we're not even aware of, which is something that I've become more interested in too, four books later. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, uh, I think there's been research done that like trauma is transferred in DNA. Uh, have you ever read about this? Yeah. I like with the, I think it's with respect to the, the Holocaust in uh, the mid 20th yeah, century. I have, I have, um, I've, I read a good deal about epigenetics. Um, when I was researching the veins of the ocean, um, I spent a lot of time in Cuba. I went 10 or 12 times for research there. And something that made a strong impression on me there was I was uh, working with a, a group over there who told me that um, there was a huge segment of the population that has Prader-Willi syndrome, which is a syndrome, that, you know, of, of manifesting children where they feel this insatiable hunger. It's, it's all, all they can think about. And, of course, that becomes... A, a risk to their health because they're constantly eating or they constantly have the desire to eat. It's very hard for families to cope with. Um, one thing that's been um, uh, observed and studied in, in uh, people who have Prader-Willi syndrome in the United States was that um, they were all descendants of people who had been through the Irish potato famine. In Cuba, the case is that they are descendants of people who were in the special period when food was scarce in Cuba in the 1990s. So this manifests generations later in, in such, you know, mysterious ways, uh, you know, the descendant of someone who felt terrible hunger, you know, somehow that is felt uh, two generations later or more. And that to me is absolutely fascinating. And of course, as you mentioned, the Holocaust survivors, it's been, uh, or the descendants of people who uh, survived the Holocaust, it's been uh, shown scientifically how trauma is passed on and the DNA and anxiety and, and all sorts of things. So it's always gotten me thinking, well, if things like trauma or even uh, physical sensations like hunger can be passed on, 
why not things like love or our land or so many other things that that all has to be a part of us as well. So um, I want to talk to you about a little bit about like just the nuts and bolts of, you know, you making your way toward writing uh, because a lot of people listening are working writers or aspiring writers and the decision that you made to, to make the leap to go get your MFA and to spend those three years focusing, uh, that takes a certain kind of courage because you had a professional life in New York City that you had been building, it sounds like, in your 20s. Is that right? Yeah, I should say I was deeply unsatisfied. So it, it came to a point where I felt like if I don't try this, I'm just going to die. Okay. Uh, that's a little dramatic the way I phrased it, but I really felt that it was I was at a crossroads. You know, uh, I I was deeply unsatisfied by my professional endeavors, and I thought I I my dream was to give my writing a, a fair shot, and um, so that's why I chose a three a three year program, not a two year program. There are two uh, two year programs, but also one that gave me full funding because I also couldn't justify you know. Um, taking out loans or anything like that right and uh and part of the funding was uh, you know i had to do a teaching assistantship so I, I picked up another skill there and then i became a teacher and now i'm a, I'm a professor so uh, i'm very practical minded in my in my choices and uh, for me it was you know not a super practical decision but i really tried to make it as practical as possible given um, the circumstances. Well, I think that's a good lesson though, you know, and it's a good mm -hmm. way to, it's a good way to be, especially when you're entering into a field as unpredictable as writing and publishing and, and how hard it is, even with great success to earn a living publishing, you know, um, I saw, I, I got my MFA and I saw, you know, there's a lot of people taking on a lot of debt and, you know, getting an MFA in poetry and you know, that's a, that's quite a burden to bear. So I think like a little bit of like practical thinking as you make decisions around these kinds of things is not the worst thing in the world. You know, like it serves mm -hmm. you, it serves you well. And I think too, um, you know, people, the, the debate over MFAs, like the value of MFAs is sort of endless and I'm not going to relitigate it here, but I think, one of the main points I'd like to just um, highlight is the word laboratory, the way that you use the time as a laboratory. And I felt exactly the same way. Like, I don't know about how much value I got out of the classroom experience. I did get some. I met some great people. Um, it wasn't comp a complete wash, but for me, it was just like a place to hide. Uh, it's like a bubble, you know? And if you have... Um, some self-discipline and a sense of purpose going into it. I don't know where else you can get that, you know, to do something like read books and try to learn how to write fiction. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of people are very disillusioned with their MFA programs. I think, well, what did you expect? You know, an MFA program is not going to make all your dreams come true or solve all your problems or give you all your best friends or all your dream mentors. I looked at it like you did. I just wanted time and space to write, you know, and uh, and I was able to do that. Um, I, I sort of soon realized that I was wanting to use the time to do even more than my MFA. So I would make my, um, my own reading list, sort of reading the things that people were not telling me to read. Um, and in, in the summers off, I was also going to conferences and workshops and things like that. So I really tried to extend the limits of the MSA as much as possible uh, during that time period when I was relieved of, you know, having to have other work responsibilities. And you said that, that you were not the kind of, this is another thing that resonated with me. You said you're not the kind of person who uh, teachers like picked out of the crowd to mentor uh, I'm wondering if things shifted when you got to your MFA program. Did anything on, along those lines change? Did you find a teacher in that program who emerged as a kind of mentor figure to you, or did you find it at another time somewhere else? Um, 
Yeah, um, I want to say my MFA program, the teachers were ex- extremely generous um, and kind, and, and they were wonderful, wonderful people. Um, and I'm, I so appreciate what they gave to me during the time, because I really feel they gave me the, the, the best of what they had to offer as professors and writers, and um, I, I just, I, I care for them so much. Um, yeah, uh, mentors, I guess, you know, I want to be clear, the fact that I didn't have mentors in high school or college um, doesn't mean I didn't have heroes or role models. Um, I was quiet and I was reserved, so, um, and I wasn't announcing that I had, you know, written things to share with people and nobody was asking me about that, so I really, I guess, was under the radar in a lot of ways. Um, when I did seek um, mentorship when I was in college from a creative writing teacher, he wasn't really interested in um, motivating me, so I kind of gave up there. But I did find, um, you know, I always had heroes in my parents and people in my community and my family who taught me the things like work ethic, who taught me you keep going anyway. Um, I learned things from mentors later on, like, um, you know, who maybe recommended more books for me to read or gave me feedback on my work, who I studied with in workshops and things like that. So that was tremendously, tremendously valuable to me as well. But I was in my 30s by that point. (laughs) Right, right. Well, I, you know, I think like my approach always with regard to that was like, I didn't want to wait around for it. And Mm -hmm. it felt like it would have been great. You know, I think maybe too, my mind was kind of poisoned by cinema. Like I'm expecting some sort of cinematic mentor, you know, like some like avuncular, kindly, um, you know, old man who's going to like pull me aside and show me the way. But what I, what I ended up, I didn't, I was going to say, what I ended up, uh, Mm. What I ended up turning to was books, and yeah. I would read like literary biography, or I would read endless interviews, or listen to endless interviews with authors. And I felt like in that way, I sort of got to pick. You know, my heroes became my mentors in that way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, um, I also was. It's not like I was, you know, knocking down the door seeking mentors either. Because uh, I, I wasn't that kind of kid either. But something interesting did happen to me when I was about 15 years old. I was on an airplane and I saw one of my faraway heroes, who at the time was um, Jacques Cousteau. And he was sitting on the airplane and the seat next to him was empty. At this time in my life, I was really into marine biology. So I was just like going wild. And my father was with me and I told my father, like, oh my God, there's Jacques Cousteau. So we sit down in our seats and I was like, oh my God, God I can't believe Jacques Cousteau was over there. Blah. So my dad is like, listen, go over and talk to him. And I'm like, no, dad, I can't do that. And he's like, just go. He's got an seat next to him. Just go and say hi and just tell him what you just told me that, you know, that you look up to him so much and, and, you know, you've seen all his films and just tell him that. So I did. because My father pushed me. And so I went over and I sat next to Jacques Cousteau and um, he, I told him, you know, that I was really into marine science, but I was very bad at science math. <laughs> you know, this is what I was concerned with at the time. <laughs> and um, I asked him if he had any advice for me. And he said to me um, that the only advice he could give me was never to take anyone's advice. And um, we chatted a little more, and he passed away soon thereafter. Um, But I remember I told my mom that, and she was like, well, I don't know how I feel about that advice that Jacques Cousteau gave you. (laughs) But it it was something that stuck with me for a long time because the way that I interpreted it was that really you've got to become your own mentor. You can't be waiting around for someone to give you the magic formulas or the advice or to be a cheerleader, you know, or to be rooting for you. Really, you have to learn how to do all that yourself. Um, otherwise it's going to be a a much harder road. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's true. You know, it's like writing can't be taught. Like you can kind of give some pointers and you can maybe hopefully offer somebody some space to work and some feedback, but 
you know, if you go into, for example, an MFA program expecting somebody to teach you how to write or to make you into a writer, I think you're, you're, you've lost the game to begin with. Like, you have to be a working writer going into one of those programs in order for it to be of real value to you. And, you know, and hopefully you get funding because in the absence of that, you know, you're taking on a debt burden that's going to be stressful most likely. Um, but, you know, it sounds like that was the case. Like you, I don't know, you're a good example of somebody who used their head a little bit and made smart decisions. <laughs> I'm a Capricorn. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you about plot. Um, I feel like, you know, you're a literary fiction writer. Uh, Infinite Country is definitely literary fiction, but it's also well plotted. Like it's very well, it's just well structured. That was the feeling that I got reading it. Uh, I felt like I was in really good hands and there was just this scent, that great sense of just zero wasted motion. Uh, and I guess like maybe this is just your innate talent and like your gift for storytelling coming through. But I feel like a lot of times literary writers struggle with that element of things. You know, they're better at character. They might be great with voice and they have great style, but like, like building a story that really um, keeps the reader turning pages and um, feels like it has like a real solid architecture to it. You know, can you talk a little bit about decisions you made around plot uh, yeah, I do. I mean, it's. Um, I certainly spend a lot of time thinking about the architecture of the story and how it's going to be told. It's hard to say what I prioritize more because I think they're all. It's all, all just as important. I love characters. I love the inner stories, the interior stories. But the only way to tell those interior stories are through actions and through events, things taking place, right? So, um, so much of it in the pre-writing, the daydreaming, the imagining period of um, writing is that, is working out um, the moments that are going to display who these people are, who are going to show them, who show their inner selves in action. So... I think that in terms of constructing plot, what I really start doing is constructing moments and those moments become scenes and the scenes together um, create a chain of events and all that like beads on a string, you know, making a necklace, all that together starts to lay down the groundwork of a plot. But plot only works when it's functioning hand in hand with the humanity of the characters, when it's a, a reflective plot, when it's something that, that has dimension, a human dimension to it. It's not just stuff happening. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, you talked about pre-writing. Mm -hmm. Is this like from a process standpoint, when you're setting out to write a novel, you might have an idea for a character. You might say to yourself, I really want to tell the story of a family. Like, you know, you have some kind of broad abstract ambition for the work. And then is this a component of your process? Like you sit down with like a notebook or on your computer and you just start like putting down ideas, you know, possibilities, scenes, images that come to you. Uh, or do you allow yourself to just kind of like go completely wild and write like a a nonsense draft that you then draw from once you've kind of gotten that out of your system. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, can you talk about what, what yeah. is pre-writing? What does pre-writing mean? It's closer to what you first described in the notebooks. I, I love my notebooks. I have stacks and stacks of them. And really the, the notebooks are the first language of the story. They're the, you know, uh, sketches. It's very disorganized, you know, sketches, notes, sentences, sketches of characters, of moments, of scenes, maybe a phrase or a turn of phrase or an image, um, a metaphor, all sorts of things that start to communicate to one another in my mind and let a story build out from there. And my, in the past, you know, when I sit down to just at the computer just to, you know, uh, write a draft on impulse, or inspiration for my mind, usually I end up, you know, writing into the wall and it'll die after 50 pages, you know. Um, that's happened enough times where I realized that's not working for me. 
I do know that when I start to hit that wall or I'm approaching that wall, because those walls always come up, you know, when I feel like I'm starting to get resistance from the book, then I turn to my notebooks and my notebooks will communicate to me what it was I was trying to do, remind me of where I was going, of where my intentions began. And from there, I can start to map the, the next road, the next leg of the road, right, until I hit the next wall. So I do spend a lot of time before I even sit down to write a sentence of the book of pouring it all into my notebooks as much as I possibly can. And then as I'm writing, I'm filling up more notebooks um, that are just kind of like a companion to the drafting where I'm making notes for myself or things to check back on later. And then I do it again as I'm revising. I make notes in my notebooks as I'm revising for things to, you know, uh, look over, revise or edit. So they are both, um, research and notes and planning, but they also become a writing diary, an editing diary, a log book, all sorts of things. I'm imagining it's a great big mess. Uh, Like, is it, or is it more organized, like on the page? (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? In the notebook itself, is it just, are you just letting yourself go or are you drawing out grids and are there flow charts? And- <laughs> no, there's no, there's no grids or flow charts. They're just lit. Maybe the, the most organized thing is there, there's maybe lists. Um, but really they're just, they're just like, um, chunks of words and text and things. Um, it's, it's very loose. It's just really like, you know, some people, I guess, would speak into a, a, a voice recorder or some people just jot things down. It's just, it's very loose. But um, I don't structure it much on purpose because I feel like then I'm starting to put constraints on my own thinking and I really have to let my thinking go wild at that point or I'm going to start to feel bored by it. So I, I can't restrict it. Well, yeah, and as you're saying this, I'm, uh, I'm looking at my desk and for some reason I don't have a proper notebook. I have mm-hmm. like a bunch of envelopes this is mm-hmm. ridiculous. Like, and I just, this is what I write on constantly. I just have stacks and stacks of these and somehow they're making sense to me. Like I know where, you know how, when you have your own little messes, you know where things are, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it, you're inspiring me to get a proper notebook. This is ridiculous that I've decided to <laughs> <laughs> just write on the back of envelopes for years on end. But um, something I want to ask you about a creative decision in your book that uh, I thought was like just right and also really moving, uh, was the point of view switch in your novel? Mm. Um, well, it's not quite a point of view switch because what you find out at that point in the book is that the whole first half of the book has been narrated by the eldest child. So even though some people confuse that with third person, it's actually first person but she is centering the story of her sister and centering the story of her parents before you get to the part where she centers herself. The only switch that really occurs then is when she kind of hands the microphone to her brother and her brother takes over there. But the rest of the topography of the book belongs to Karina, the the eldest uh, daughter. I didn't get that though. Like as a reader, like uh, yeah. maybe that's maybe that's my own shortcoming. But like to me, it <laughs> felt like you know this is like a third person mm-hmm. uh, POV narration of Talia and Moro. Um, you know, and and Talia's a you know escape basically. Um, and then when it when it switched to Karina writing in the first person, uh, I mm-hmm. found it emotional. Like there was an mm-hmm. it was, like there was a really emotional moment in the book for me, and it made it made everything that had happened more immediate and more personal. Well, I, the idea is that you, you really can't have that experience of reading her, um, you know, saying the things she needs to say at that point in the book without knowing everything that came before, you know. So it, obviously my hope as a writer was that it would give you a, a different sense of dimension on her experience by knowing all the, the life and the love that came before the many, many years that, you know, went into creating the circumstances of, of her life in particular. But the stories of her sister and her brother, um, you know, she, Karina is, is the family witness. She's really, I, I think that in most families, there is somebody like this who's the family storyteller, the family historian, 
the one who pays attention, the one who's keeping track, the one that most people tell things to and is kind of chronicling, chronicling things on behalf of the family. So Karina is that person for this family. And the stories that um, are told about her sister and her journey and her parents' journey, those have been told to her, and she's keeping a record of all that um, as she tries to compile her family's story. Your book really made me think about, like, what are we, what are we going to do? You know, like, what are we to do? to make sure that this does not happen to families. And um, it also made me, I always think of the future. Like I think we're coming or we're headed towards a time when um, there's going to be way more, like like exponentially more human displacement due to climate change than we've ever seen. And you're going to have massive, like mass migrations as like coastal regions flood. And it just, I don't know. It, it really, it made it real and it made me think about all of those big questions uh, around how to deal with, um, you know, human need, and to make sure that that people who uh, are in flight from circumstance or who are in search of a better life don't get dehumanized. Or I don't know. I'm, do you see what I'm getting at? I, I guess you, you obviously share similar concerns. I, I guess I just want somebody to tell me what we should do. It, the, the problems seem big, like the scale of the problem as I try to consider it, you know, in terms of like how we should respond as a country and as a people. Well, the United States, most people have largely disassociated from their own immigrant past if it's not in the, you know, their recent memory. Uh, because it's many generations behind them, and that distance allows them to um, alienate others and feel different and and, and even look down um, on the experience of others who are migrating for purposes of their own human survival, even though the human species has literally ensured its survival by migrating. It's a natural instinct to move to ensure your survival, to pursue better resources, to protect your young. Uh, and the fact that we've this de designed borders in a way that does not quite reflect the needs of humanity is like I don't know why that 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 you know shocks anyone. You know, it's it's just absurd. Um, the fact is, in the United States in particular, um, it's very easy for for Americans to keep their blind spots because this country is so enormous. It's the size of dozens of countries elsewhere and there we we take for granted things like people who call themselves bicoastal fly back and forth between the east and west coast every week when that's the distance of 12 countries you know and just because we don't have borders stopping us we think oh it's our right i'm in miami right now and i could fly to seattle and it would take me just as long to get to england or to paris right um, but I can do all that without leaving the borders of my own country. So we take for granted how enormous our country is and the fact that we can move around it freely. When really, people migrating would be comparable to you never being allowed to leave your state. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day who who, um, who had grown up in Massachusetts. And I said, well, what if you, were never, you weren't allowed to leave Massachusetts? And Massachusetts was confronted by a humanitarian crisis or a war, a civil conflict. You needed to leave or your life would be in danger. And you could not. You could not go to Vermont because Vermont does not want you there, <laughs> you know, and you could not cross the border into Vermont or you could. But then you would have to work, you know, in a way that was clandestine. And people in Vermont would constantly tell you, remind you that you were unwelcome. You would be treated poorly. Your rights would not be respected. And everybody would be telling you to go back to Massachusetts and stay there because what you're doing is wrong. Wanting to leave Massachusetts is wrong. You know, it's like, it's ridiculous Yeah, when you think about it. But, the you know, the, people talk about the immigration system being broken. Listen, it's the way it is because people want it that way. It's because it's serving certain people that way. A lot of people have a lot to gain by keeping it exactly the way it is. Uh, the, the fact is we're all benefiting from it because of uh, cheap labor that is, is provided by everything that we need to keep our ordinary lives going. 
So, you know, we can interrogate that. And I don't have all the answers to all your questions. The only thing I know is that, um, you know, every, every, almost every human family has migrated in some capacity and that to criminalize movement is absurd. And to look down on people who are only trying to do what anybody would do is also, you know, uh, people, we have to interrogate where these ideas have come from. Because if we're leading with compassion, we're leading with honesty, and we're leading with open hearts, and really in the best interest of humanity, we wouldn't, nobody would come to these conclusions. You know, Infinite Country is not a story about the border. Infinite Country is the story of a family who came on tour visas, who overstayed which is a very common thing, you know, and uh, Americans do this all the time, okay? Um, and people do this all the time, and it's, it's really just um, speaking to the fact that sometimes people just are going about life and become immigrants accidentally just because their paperwork is defining them in this way paperwork that was considered uh, legal or legitimate one day, the next day, it's, it's, it's something different because of the date, right? And you have to build your life around that. And we come up with these terms like documented or undocumented or illegal or illegal and things like that when really the spectrum of paperwork possibilities is so vast and endless and ever-changing as laws are ever-changing that to reduce it to this binary is also another way of of you know of othering and criminalizing and dehumanizing this human experience. This year of the pandemic, of course, when I wrote this book, there's no way I could have anticipated it would be coming out during a pandemic. This is a year when people have maybe gotten a small sense of what it's like to be separated by loved ones for reasons completely out of their control, to miss out on special occasions, to not be able to be there when a loved one is sick or even dying in the hospital, right? Who we've been restricted by our travel. And it's also the first time borders of most countries have been closed to Americans. And maybe people are getting a little sense of what that's like to be shut in to your own country and to have choices taken away from you for reasons that you cannot change, that you cannot control. Right. One, yeah, one hopes like that. Like I've had that thought, like I hope people, I hope we're learning like as people, like the world over, you know, hopefully this will make us better in some way. Um, that's certainly the hope. I don't know if, if it'll be the case in practice, but you would hope that like after going through this pandemic and all that it entails, that it would soften us a little and make us more compassionate people and um, more understanding. But I have my... I have my reservations. I'm not sure if it's the case. <laughs> um, I guess on my more optimistic days, I feel like it will. But well, some people some people are very selective with who they grant their compassion to. Well, I found your book uh, to be incredibly moving and just beautifully done. Uh, like I have a, a great amount of admiration for it and uh, appreciation for it. Like it was. Um, I don't know. It was just an awesome reading experience and um, made a lot of things, like I was telling you at the at the very beginning of our conversation, it made a lot of things um, like real to me in the way that, um, you know, maybe it wasn't fully before and also just in the way that great fiction does. So uh, I thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much. That means so much to me. Thank you. All right, everybody, there you have it. That is Patricia Engel. Her new novel, Infinite Country, is available now from Avid Reader Press. It is the official April pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. You can find her on the Internet at patriciaengel.com. She's on Facebook. You can also follow her on Twitter. Her handle there is at Patricia underscore Engel. Again, the novel is called Infinite Country. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People Podcast is listener-supported. Support the show. Tip your server at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Everything is free. Every episode. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat if you can. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. 
If you would like to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. Go get the app. It's available wherever apps are available. If you would like to get another people t-shirt, just visit the show online at its official website, otherppl.com. Click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar. You can't miss it. What else? Coming up on Wednesday, a conversation with poet Mick Grantham whose debut collection, Hardcore, is out there now from Short Flight, Long Drive. I had a great time talking with Mick. Infinite Country is a terrific novel. I keep reading good books. It's nice. My dad really liked this book. Whenever he likes a book in the, in the book club... He always texts me, liked, and then like he gives the title of the book. Or enjoyed. Is that what he says? Enjoyed. <laughs> it's like the kind of like monotone parent, you know, parental texting. But that constitutes like a rave review from him. All right. All right.